When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Welcome to a, another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and to, this week we are detouring <clears throat> into the world of books again, as we did a few weeks ago with The Art of Horror. This time we're looking at The Art of Gothic uh, with Natasha Scarf. So, uh, without further ado, over to the interview. Hello. Hello, is that Natasha? Yes, it is. Hi. Hi, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm very well. I'm very well. Good. Um, it's been uh, it's been a pleasure looking through your book. Oh, I'm I'm glad it did arrive. No, it did. No, it did. It arrived in good Fantastic. time. It arrived in good time, and uh, yes, it's um, it took me back. If truth be told, I was um, in my in my youth in uh, in the centre of Manchester. We had uh, the Banshee, mm-hmm. which was our uh, local golf club. Mm. And uh, yeah, no, it uh, took me back. I was looking uh, looking back over photographs of me in um, my old biker jack black jeans day, black jeans day that I used to enjoy. Fantastic! What, what year was that then? God, um, ninety uh, eighty-eight, ninety-one period. Oh, okay, okay. I'm of a certain vintage. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not a young man. Um, <laughs> I was kind of. I mean, I had one of, when I went to university. One of the graphic students on my. Um, on my floor in halls, she wanted to practice lettering, so I got Godflesh on the back of my leather, leather coat. Oh. Which was amazing. <laughs> I've seen some really amazing, um, you know, painting jobs on the back of leather jackets and stuff, but people don't tend to do it so much these days. You tend to get the kind of the smaller subgenres of goth, like the death rock, they tend to do it more. Yeah, well, so I think it comes, yeah, great. I think it comes out the metal side of it, I think, mm. more so. But yeah, you're right. There was there was a time when I, when I'd be going to the Banshee in Manchester, yeah. you know, you would have people with various kind of, if not painted on the back, they might just attach a segment of, of old T-shirt or something. You yeah, know? yeah, that yeah, kind of exactly. Um, but I, I guess as as goth clothing becomes more readily available, there's less need for people to do that, so you don't see it. So I, I guess that's that must be the reason why. No, no, it, it, I think I think you're right. I think that's yeah. the. I mean, Affleck's Palace in Manchester was like a you know a haven for for that kind of clothing. It mm. certainly wasn't available readily on on the high street as were. And yeah. uh, I remember that. But I remember the first time going to America in the late nineties, 
and seeing the clothing, like the misfit stuff in a shopping mall. Yeah. It's kind of like, where, where, what's happened? Where, where, how is this? How, how have we got here? <laughs> yeah. It was bootlegs, bootlegs and uh, bad recordings when I was a nipper. Yeah, yeah, and and yeah. Certainly, by the late '90s, you had the bigger brands like Lip Service creating sort of almost gothic couture. You know, it was it was quite expensive stuff, and, and still is Lip Service brand. No, indeed, indeed, and it's it's um, it's like a lot of things, really. I mean, I've, I've, when when you read books that sort of look back over something, you realise there was there were sort of tipping points where the commodification took it into the mainstream, and it would never, never necessarily be as kind of evolving as it once was, you know, whereby it was sort of bottom up as opposed to top down. And obviously I know all kind of youth moving stuff will ultimately be bottom up. But I think sometimes there's a little bit a little bit of force down coming from the way that things are so readily available. Like I say, the shopping mall example really surprised me. Um, it's, yeah, it's a double-edged sword, really, isn't it? Because you want it to be successful and popular, but at the same time it's nice to keep it a little bit niche. And, and I guess that, that was really what the book was about, was creating that balance between the kind of the more commercial side of art mm. and also the underground, you know, kind of people doing DIY and creating things not necessarily for commercial gain. Mm. So, I mean, thinking about it, I mean, let's, we, we've started, so let's, let's carry, on as we, yep. carry on as we mean to go. Um, so, uh, if you want to introduce yourself... So my name's Natasha Scharf. I'm the author of the book, The Art of Gothic, which is an, an exploration of all the different kinds of art related to goth subculture. Okay. Now, what, where, where was your own interest in gothic or goth? I'm looking at a photograph. I'm presuming that's you on the, uh, on, on the Skype. Yes, um, that's me. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, you're, you're recognisably goth as far as I can imagine it. <laughs> um, and uh, in the classic sense as well, I might add. Um, so where, where was your interest in, in the goth gothic seeded, as it were, for you? Where did that all start? Oh, gosh. Um... I mean, when I first became interested in goth, it wasn't called goth. It didn't really, goth as a, as a thing didn't really exist. It wasn't a subculture at that stage. I came in really through, through punk music. And as far as I was concerned, that was what I was listening to, it was punk. But it was always that darker side of the punk. So the Susie and the Banshees stuff, um, I liked Joy Division. I was very into The Cure as well at, at that point. So we're talking really kind of late 70s, early 80s. Mm. When I was young, I, I, didn't, I didn't know what it was. I just knew I liked it, you know, and I was very drawn to it. And I've tried to no, I've, I've tried to analyse what it was that it was that, that attracted me to it. Yeah. And you know, I, I think, well, what, what was it? And you think it, maybe it was because the image was very um, theatrical, and because it almost looked like something out of a, a storybook, and and the music was quite simplistic. It was almost like sort of nursery rhymes. If you'd certainly listened to Susie and the Banshees kaleidoscope album it is quite sort of sing-songy nursery rhyming and i guess that just it kind of resonated with me it's the only thing i can think of that was something that i mean i, I mean I, I would i would claim to know my music um but it's the first time when i was reading some of the intro stuff of it um where um 
it's the, describing the, 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 the sort of proto-god stuff before it even got given its name as being this thing called positive punk, which I'd never, I'd never heard that expression before. <laughs> it, it was really a media term, and in fact, goth kind of started off as a media term. I mean, mm. people can trace gothic, obviously, you know, further back than that. You've got mm. gothic art, gothic architecture, gothic literature, and coming into sort of the beginning of the 20th century, gothic film as well. And so gothic has been there for a long time, but goth was more recent. You know, you can really sort of start pinpointing it. You start seeing it popping up on press releases, in magazine articles, and with reference to bands like Susie and the Banshees and Joy Division and Bauhaus as well. Mm. Um, and this term positive punk, again, it was another media term that came out in the early 80s, as the book ex explains. Um, basically, journalists trying to find a label to put on something, because when you've got something new, and particularly you know, musically or fashion-wise, mm. The, the nature, human nature, is to put a label on it. You want to know where it belongs, how you categorise it, where you can put it. And, and it's interesting because you get individuals that don't like working with labels, but I think, you know, human nature is that we like labels, we like tribes, we like to feel like we belong to something. No, without a doubt. And I think, I think it, it, and in, retros, in retrospect, with, with you giving that kind of that, that origin sort of coming out of the early 80s where it sort of gets the name it's actually become quite a defining and enduring term hasn't it because mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's sort of it's evolved to cover more ground yes. but, but there's no mistaking what it is if you know what I mean yeah I always think it's interesting you know you, you look at the evolution and you can see you can see this happening in other genres as well where suddenly something very fluid very organic gets given a name and all these rules start becoming attached to it. Ah, well, if you are a goth, you must do X, Y, Z. You must only wear black. You must only have black hair. And of course, these rules, they're not, you know, they're not the be-all and end-all of, of goth, but they make it more identifiable, I guess, to the outsiders. And I know plenty of goths who don't have black hair. You know, for example, um, but you would still, yeah, and you, you, you know, you still identify them as being goths, and they still identify as being goths as well through the music that they like, through the culture. I mean, there are some goths that don't necessarily like goth music. And when you start looking at the German dark scene, which is this huge, huge scene, it's, you know, it's, it's very commercial. And you do get some of the, the German goths going, ah, oh, the goth scene in Germany is dead, you know, because. It's, they see it more as, as a kind of a commercial dark scene that is all-encompassing, and it does include lots of different things, and it all kind of comes under this banner. And you go to events like the Wave Gothic Treffen, which is the largest goth festival anywhere in the world that takes place in Leipzig in East Germany, and the, the cultural expanse of, of what comes under this dark scene umbrella is just incredible. You know, you have classical concerts and operas. They take over the opera house, and films and, and clubs and obviously live bands as well and shopping and it's just this whole broad thing, it's, it's amazing you know, and for me goth is a lifestyle it's not a fashion it's mm. not just a, a music it is this whole alternative lifestyle So, so how, what, how did the journey start with you writing the book The Art of Gothic, where did that start for you? So the, the journey for me um I was, well, I, I'd written one book in any case called um, Worldwide Gothic, and I've been trying to write 
books for a while and you know been pitching ideas and all this you know as as one does as a writer you you pitch ideas and obviously I've been a music journalist for a long time as well Um, and I was very interested in the visual side I've always been very interested in that visual side and I'd actually been having this conversation with a friend of mine about oh I've got nowhere to put this visual side of it anymore because I I do you know I write about music as as my day job and um I was getting a bit frustrated, and then all of a sudden I get approached to write this book that is this visual side, and the publisher had this these sort of very set idea, no, it wasn't really set ideas, very sort of uh, fluid idea of, of what they wanted, and I came along and said, oh, actually, how about if we do this? And they went, oh, that's brilliant. Yeah, that, that's fantastic. So that kind of gave me my outlet that I was looking for, and it fulfilled what they wanted as well. So it was it was a very a happy union, a happy marriage, if you like. Mm. No, because I like I like the. Uh, I mean, I, I made the mistake when I first did the skim read of sort of thinking, oh my, so goth was in, gothic was invented out of the out of the music, but obviously that's that's me reading it wrong. Um, obviously the the adjective gothic to describe the architecture, literature, and art that had gone before, and then you've got the tribal, the music, and stuff that come out out of punk that became goth. And I found I found that interesting. That that ties in with your the notion you were saying that not everybody who's into gothic stuff is necessarily a goth in the tribal sense or into the music. It's the, there's not that direct fit, is there, is what you're saying. Yeah, and, and I think that that was one of the things that was important to me, to actually call this the art of gothic rather yeah. than the art of goth. So I'm saying, yeah, although this is actually about things that goths are interested in, mm. actually, if you're interested in gothic, you might also like to, to read this book. It's not about gothic architecture. It's not about... You know, classical Gothic art. There are lots of books already about these things, but it gives you kind of a, a, a broad cross spectrum of a bit of everything. And in fact, I did a book signing um, a couple of months ago up in Whitby, um, in North Yorkshire, which is famous for, um, in literary terms, as, as being the place where Dracula landed his ship, the, the Demeter. He did indeed. And and there were people coming to the book signing that weren't goths, but they were very interested in gothic. Mm. And they were just like, gosh, this book is amazing. We you know, we really love the visual side of it. And it is a very visual book. Mm. So where, where we, I mean, given, given we've, we've sort of, we've talked about the, the, the where the, word, the adjective comes from, historically speaking, and and where the more modern term goth comes from. You, you've split this book into seven headings. Yes. So where was you? Where were you taking your lead for those terms? I'll read them off just for the for the benefit of the listener. So you've got you start with classic goth. You have what you call then dark fantasy, then futuristic, then sinister, then dark Japanese style melodrama, and then ending on modern gothic. So what was what what were the driving forces behind the decisions to sort of split it that way? Um, well, the, the publisher wanted it to be split, and in actual fact, The Art of Gothic is part of a series of art books um, that look at different musical styles. So there's been The Art of Metal and The Art of, of Punk as well, and, okay. and I, I believe that you had The Art of Horror um, explored recently on, on your uh, podcast. We do indeed, yes. So it was a case of, well, how can we break this down? So I kind of did a, a brainstorm of all the different types of of goth related art and initially i actually started off with different musical subgenres okay so i kind of looked at the different musical subgenres and thought maybe i'll break it down that way and then i realized that there was some crossover with different styles of of art so i thought okay maybe that's not going to work and then i just sort of 
really played with different words and different themes and thought, what do these pictures actually mean? So in some ways, some of the things in the classic goth, maybe they could also belong in dark fantasy. But because they're part of that classic goth movement, I felt that it was more appropriate to put them in there. With the dark Japanese style, you know, I was sort of wondering, well, what do I do with the kind of cyberpunk and anime? Because really, that's part of dark Japanese style, but it also belongs in the futuristic. So you sort of start getting these, <laughs> these things of, where does this belong and where do I put that? Um, and eventually, really, it was just a list, a, a way of making lots of lists, putting things in and thinking that that really suits that category. Um, and, and let's put that in there. And with the melodrama, I wanted to bring out um, some of the high fashion side of goth because yeah. obviously the catwalks have been very inspired by goth, not just in terms of the, the, the subcultural fashion, mm -hmm. but also in terms of historical gothic fashion. Um, particularly Alexander McQueen is a, is a very good example of, of a designer, a couture designer, who was very much inspired by historical Gothic, but also coming from that punk background, he was interested in it from that side of the, the punk side as well. Um, but then I also wanted to put in steampunk, so I thought, well, actually, both are melodramatic, so perhaps it, it belongs better within the melodrama category and then I can, you know, it, it, it seems to tell more of a story. It connects better. Mm. And, and so which, which, um, which, and it's putting you on the spot now, uh, <laughs> which, which subclassification do you feel closest to and enjoy most as a fan? Um, I like a bit of everything, really. I suppose where I came from, it was originally that, that classic goth, yeah. because I came from the, the punk side of things. But I am rather drawn towards the sort of the horror punk and death rock um, side of things. I, I guess it's that sort of playful, it doesn't take itself too seriously, it's a little bit sort of Halloween kitsch. And I, I find it actually a very creative movement as well, the death rock scene. You still get a lot of people making their own um, clothing, their own you know, hairstyles. Uh, it's, it's very creative, as is steampunk as well. But mm. I think, yeah, my, my leaning's probably kind of between the classic and the, and the death rocky horror punk side. I, and and that, that segues nicely. I mean, one of the things that I like... Uh, uh, I've always thought about goth just, just across the piece, you know, as it's developed across all of the genres. And I'm, I'm probably looking at this more so from the kind of, you know, post-punk side of things and how it's developed through. And I, I guess I picked up the thread late 80s, early 90s. So that was where you got the development of your sort of industrial music scene, of which you've got stuff in there, Skinny Puppy and, and Ministry and the like. But obviously you had the stalwarts already established by then, like The Cure, Sisters of Mercy, The Mission and such like, and Alien Sex Fiend, you know, blah, blah, blah. blah. Yeah, mm. Fields of Nephilim. They, they were like what was played at the, at the Banshee in Manchester. Mm. Um but what I always was attracted to as maybe someone who was maybe a wannabe rather than, you know, died in the wool, was what you describe as this, this, this strong element of dressing up. I mean, I remember there was one guy at the Banshee that, that, that always intrigued me. You know, if you can imagine, you know, the kid, I, I was from like 10 miles north of Manchester, so I wasn't from the centre of Manchester. So you, you'd come in and then as a youth, you discover in this fantastic world of which the yeah. Banshee was one of them. And this guy had, had a corset on with like like a probably a twenty two inch waist, and I was like, "What is going on? Who is you know really kind of androgynous?" And obviously the ladies loved him, 
Um, so that was kind of like, where's that coming from? You know, so I've always felt there's that element of dressing up, and you, and you make that point at the beginning of your uh, your melodrama chapter. So, so I mean, where do you, do you see do you see that connection all, all the way through? I mean, there's certainly a, a, a repeated going through all the headings. There is always there's a uniform of some sort, isn't there? I mean, I think that that's the thing is when you are trying to identify a goth, as, as I say, generally speaking, it's from their appearance that you'll do it. You don't, you know, sort of go with a questionnaire and go, do, do you like these bands? Are you interested in these films? All right, you're a goth. You, you look at the way somebody appears. So I think... Yes, there is an element of, of a look about goth, of course, but of course goth fits into many different look categories. You can't mm. say this is the uniform of goth. There's a, a beautiful meme on the internet with um, little caricatures of each of the different goth substyles, and you've got sort of romantic goth, industrial goth, fetish goth, lolita goth, death rock goth, and the whole thing, <laughs> and, and you know, each time a new sub sub-style emerges there's a new little caricature emerges as well um, so yeah I think the, the look is, is hugely important to goth um, as, as a way of identity but I don't think that all goths have that look, maybe it's not practical, maybe they live in an area where you know they would get in hassle for looking the way that they do or maybe their work or their school or their family or something, you know, d doesn't permit that. Mm. Um, and in a sense, you know, goth has that rebellious air, but not everybody's up to being a rebel, I guess. Well, what do you, I mean, what do you, what do you think you've uncovered about, about, about fans of, of, of goth that, you know, what, I mean, I was just going to say about whether they're kicking against anything or, or are they, or in some senses, are they, what are they wanting to celebrate with their fandom of goth? I think one of the biggest things about goths is that they are very creative. Whether they are personally creating stuff or whether they're just drawn to other people creating stuff, it, it does seem to be, I think, one of the most creative subcultures or musical tribes or movements or whatever you want to call it, um, certainly that I've come across. I can't really think of any other movement that is as creative as, as goth. And, I mean, you, you get surveys and... Um, uh, socio sociological analysis um, about goths. Why are they goths? What is it that they're, you know, what is their hidden agenda? And it's just this creative thing that comes out. And the other aspect of goth is, of course, dealing with the gothic and um, providing a safe environment to deal with fears and things. And, mm -hmm. and you know, that is something that, that does pop up, and particularly in the artwork, you'll see elements of, of things that might be considered to be a little bit scary or gruesome or macabre for outsiders. But it's not to say that goths are all depressed and that they celebrate the macabre and things like that, because that's not true. So there's some parallels there with the with what, what I talked about with the horror book, really. It's that idea of mm. um, the vicarious sort of living of the macabre. It's, it's, means that it's not rep it's not a repressed thing. I was, it was an interesting quote from H.R. Um, Geiger that you, that you mentioned in there, where he sort of <laughs> it, the description of itself is morbid, but then you go, okay, yeah, but he's he's ended up making these beautiful images. So mm. playing around with bones and stuff might seem a bit weird. But it, 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 if, if you've done that and it's no longer weird to you, and then you start making these beautiful pieces of artwork, you can see why he'd want to make that point. 
and I, I guess it's it's finding beauty in in the macabre, finding beauty in things that we fear. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like um, I can't remember if I used it now. That Nick Fiend had said something to me um, from Alien Sex Fiend about how people would say, "Why are you walking around with things that have got skulls and bones?" And it's like, well, we all have a skull. <laughs> we all have bones, so yeah, you know, yeah, what's yeah. the big deal about it? Now, um, now, given, given obviously Britflix, we usually we usually cover film, so it's it's mm-hmm. um, I sort of go, it, you know, what, what did you discover that sort of exemplifies gothic most in cinema? I mean, obviously, you you you, you specifically go into sort of goth screen queens. You cover Tim Burton, and there's a few sort of video game adaptations such as Silent Hill and Doom, a single that for attention. But what, what what did you discover that exemplifies sort of gothic in cinema from from doing think- this book? I mean, Gothic cinema is, is it's a huge topic. Gothic cinema has been going on for, for years, and it, it's not necessarily connected to goth. So what I was looking at is more the stuff that is connected to goth. Because I mean, okay. we can talk about Gothic cinema, and, and yes, I've, I've used an image from the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, Caligari in there, which, of course, is early um, example of, of German Gothic cinema expressionism as well. Um, and you've got Nosferatu and things like that. Sure. Um, and, and it's interesting the way that you kind of get these recurring motifs and these recurring themes so that when you actually get to that period, I would say, sort of 80s onwards, where goth is a subculture yeah. and the gothic that is explored within film incorporates elements of goth, by which I'm talking about things like Tim Burton's movies, for example, mm-hmm. um, where he's, he's... It's not just about the horror and the macabre but it's also about kind of being the outsider mm. um, and portraying things again in a, in a very beautiful a very lush, very lavish way um, I mean I, I, I love Tim Burton's films, I think they're just visually in, incredible and I really actually enjoyed doing more research on Tim Burton to find out his stories behind and, and mm. you know why he was creating these things because I didn't know any of that Previously, I'd just taken the films on face value and gone, well, I really love this. Okay. So that that was an interesting discovery that I made. Yeah. Um, and then as you kind of get more into the modern cinema, and I always pronounce his name wrong, but Guillermo del Toro's movies, again, you've got these lavish fairy tales, which are incredibly gothic, but they're also very goth because they're using a lot of uh, sort of motifs and, and tropes and imagery that we would associate more with goth and gothic. Yeah. So those were things that I, I was finding out about and, and you know, some new discoveries that I was making. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, you, you, you're asking about... Um, British gothic films as well, you, you asked me. And mm. I was thinking, well, sort of the, the most obvious thing for that would be House of, of Hammer. But okay. yet that's not necessarily very goth, is it? Not, not specifically, no, but I mean, I'm, ask, I, I'm, quite, I'm quite open for, 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 to, 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 to sort of listen to the argument for, because it's, like, it's, it's about, I mean, it, unfortunately, it's, 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 it's about the pigeonhole, isn't it? Because nobody, nobody at Hammer House of Horror decided to make something that would be defined this way, but obviously in retrospect we can see its influence running through popular culture today, I suppose, in, mm. in terms of where people take their lead from in terms of fashion and style and aesthetic and stuff. And I guess a lot of it was just kind of tapping into the zeitgeist of the time. You know, it, it was the, the 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, they, they were some quite dark times. Mm. And I, I guess 
when you're looking at the films and the fashions and the music, it all kind of comes together at that time and, and you start seeing this common thread weaving through because it's a reflection of what's happening in society, what's happening culturally, what's happening even politically. Yeah. What, what, would, what would you say were the sort of your three favourite discoveries that you came that you came to from writing this book that, that you know because you, if, you, if you've been sort of following this as a kind of just a, a casual observer plus you know the music journalism where you've kind of picked up other knowledge as you've gone along but obviously when you set, set time aside to write this book what, 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 what was uh, what were your favourite discoveries you made? Uh, finding new artists mm -hmm. was was a, a big one, and one of the things that, that I was, thought was quite funny was that there were particular pieces of art, whether these be album covers or posters or you know sort of um, logos, and then suddenly finding out that they were all actually by the same artist, or that that artist had worked with other artists that I mm -hmm. liked, and you could sort of start to see this pattern emerging, and I found that very interesting as a discovery. So, for example, Stephen R. Gilmore. Um, who designed a lot of the Skinny Puppy and, and Network covers, seeing him popping up on different things, thinking, oh, I like that. Oh, but I like that as well. Oh, it's the same artist. Um, and there was another guy... Um, gosh, there were so many artists in there. I'm trying to remember all their names. Another <laughs> chap who'd, who'd um, uh, done the Susie and the Banshees um, Swimming Horses cover, who'd actually worked on uh, Tim Burton's Corpse Bride. And you can sort of start seeing these bridges between goth music and gothic film or you know um different elements of goth and gothic yeah. they start bridging between them just through the art and the people that are working on them and putting their impressions on these things um what else was i particularly excited about discovering i mean the, the whole book really was was just this massive discovery of, of putting my favorite pieces in discovering other new favorites um, and just kind of packaging it all up I mean there were pieces that we couldn't get in the book yeah. because particularly the older pieces where you're dealing with things that might be out of copyright or nobody's quite sure who owns the copyright or somebody owned the copyright and then the business got sold and, and it all gets a bit convoluted and, and confusing mm. um, so, you know, there, there was also this element of, of sadness on, on my part for not being able to include some of those pieces, but the stuff that actually got in there, um, yeah, when, when the proofs actually came back from the printers, I just remember looking at them and going, wow, actually this looks, <laughs> wow. Because when you're working on it, you're not actually looking at it as a big picture, you're looking at the individual elements of it and you're thinking, you know, does the text tie up? with the imagery, how does this work, is this the right word count, is the style right, have I spelt everything correctly? <laughs> um, and you're not actually looking at it, you know, as, as these lavish spreads of vibrant colour. Yeah, 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 it must, it must really come alive. I never thought of it that way before. Like when you're, you're obviously writing a book, you're not writing it, filling in the gaps between pictures. That happens as the work gets gets edited and designed. Yeah, and, and that's one thing I could say to the listener is that this is this is genuinely a beautiful book and it covers a really wide a really, sorry, a really broad church of imagery there's, there's there's obvious stuff in there but then there was stuff I'd, I'd just never heard of but it's you know it it sits well alongside the stuff that I was expecting to see um, and say so it was all about creating that balance that mm. balance between including the stuff that people were expecting and the stuff that maybe they weren't expecting that made it a little bit different from the average books on the shelf 
And I think, from, from my point of view, I think the bit that I, I really didn't know anything about going in, you know, picking this book up was the dark Japanese style. That was mm. that that was a whole new chapter for me in terms of what is goth. I mean, I could see, I could see it in terms of where it could come from, in terms of what I already knew about Japanese style, as it were, and the way that they the way they do that kind of Lolita type stuff. Mm. But but that was and but also the interesting to see that that becomes a springboard for influencing goth elsewhere. It's kind of it, it's it's not static, is it? It's not like here in Japan they do this and then that's mm. the end of it. And I think a lot of that is to do with the internet, you know, and the fact that it is so easy to find out about and communicate with things that are happening, you know, in other countries. And that is one of the, the reasons, I think, why goth continues to grow and develop and adapt and mutate and, and expand even now, you know, and it's mm. been going on for you know, quite a few decades now, since since late 70s, early 80s. And, you know, there aren't, aren't too many other subcultures that you can actually say have been going for that long um, and are still continuing to evolve. No, I think it's probably because, I mean, if you th I mean punk was, was maybe a bit too politicised to be mm. just the fashion label. Um, so once it kind of ran out of its political steam, its aesthetic kind of was easy to dilute, whereas... I think goth started in the aftermath of it as a way of expression, mm. and then it grew itself and it, it adapted. It, it, it you know cottoned on to things like you know Bram Stoker's Dracula. So we'll have a bit of that, and then we you know we'll we'll do a bit of German expressionism. We'll bring that in as well, and and so it was able to grow with other things that weren't necessarily as politicised as what punk was trying to do, which I guess is what makes it enduring. Fascinating thing for me, and and, and I guess the futuristic chapter makes my underlying assumption of goth wrong so it's sort of the exception that proves the rule um, if you think about if I think about the way that the sort of what the melodrama thing covers which is to me is like another rebirth of of, um, of, of what is goth you know the whole kind of Victoriana steampunk mm. thing you know and that you know when you see that happening and people are talking about it in Doctor Who and it's sort of yeah. very mainstream at that point you're kind of like wow what, what is it about this kind of retro futurism that that um that, that, that seems to be sticking and, and obviously it's, you've got things like Iron Sky uh, the mm. movie mm. Um, but, but the fact that it naturally sits with goth is, 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 is very true as well it's not like it's an, a, a bad fit either yeah, and there's a lot of, lot of people that are part of steampunk that say it's got nothing to do with goth, and a lot of goths who say steampunk's got nothing to do with goth um, but yeah, the, the two kind of you can see where they can sort of merge and and I think probably one of the things is the fact that steampunk is as a literary genre fairly contemporary yeah, you know yeah, yeah. It, it hasn't really been going for that long mm -hmm. even though you can find you know sort of ingredients of it going far back Jules Verne and and that kind of era mm. It, it hasn't really been going for that long, and maybe that's why it's still sort of having these kind of teething. Nobody's really entirely sure where it belongs. Obviously, it's a literary style. Is it a cosplay? Is it actually a subculture? So I think, you know, in terms of, of steampunk, it's still evolving, and obviously you've got the steam goth component, which is connected mm. more closely to goth. And I was asked... Um, a few years ago, I gave a talk and somebody said, you know, what is steampunk music? Is there actually a particular thing that you can 
say this is steampunk music and and right now the answer is not really because it's all different styles yeah. often you'll get you know the musicians wearing steampunk clothing and playing instruments that have either been modified um, in a steampunk way or perhaps they're very old instruments mm. but there isn't actually a musical genre that it can fit into because it straddles across many different but then so does goth mm. yeah no it's it's uh, I, I, I like i like its emergence and i i love a subculture even though even when i'm not part of it i think it's mm. I think I think they're exciting things when people sort of can attach themselves to something and then explore it. Like you say, the exploration of it becomes maybe um, a creative thing after after you've mined it, as it were. So maybe you, you, you geek out on it and you find out all the facts and figures that you need to know, or listen to all the right records, watch the the right films, and then suddenly you're like the, the usual the usual the usual pattern for a lot of people who've invested that much time. Is then to become part of it. So it's you know some of the artists that you cover in it. You know you can see that's their journey, whereby they you know they start to do their drawings and suddenly it's a reflection of that subculture they've been following, and then it becomes their art. And then they usually get to a point where they go, no, no, we're not goth anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm an artist. Don't put me in the goth. Yeah, don't put me yeah. in the goth section. I'm just art. Well, look, um, art of gothics out now, yeah. Yes, 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 it is out. It's, it's available um, in all good book retailers and online uh, through Omnibus Press in the UK and uh, Backbeat Books in the USA and North America. Brilliant. Now, I know you mentioned Hammer House Horror, but is there, is there a specific film, that you, British film, you could recommend that goths would enjoy or that you would describe <laughs> as gothic? Um, well, apart from all the, the sort of the Tim Burton stuff. Um, Any British one the, ones, though? One of the things, yeah, when you were saying British, I was thinking, gosh, you know, British, British, British. And the one that I was kind of thinking of, it's not an obvious film, cool. but I thought I'm going to go with it anyway. There was a film that came out uh, around 2011 called The Awakening, and it's a very British ghost story. It's, it's set in the 1920s, mm -hmm. and it just, it screams British ghost story, and it's very, very well put together. Um, it's not a particularly well-known film. Um, it's a fairly independent film um, starring Rebecca Hall, Dominic West, Imelda Staunton. In fact, I actually think Imelda Staunton's probably the biggest name on the, um, yeah, yeah, on well, the do cast. Dominic, Dominic West is, no, mm. is a big name as well. Um, and uh, yeah, it, was, it was just one of those films that I saw when it first came out, and I thought, actually, that, that was really, really well done. It, one of the things that we're so good at in, in this country is ghost stories and one of the other films I was thinking of was um, A Woman in Black um, yeah. the Daniel Radcliffe version which of course was uh, House of Hammer but um, yeah, I think maybe The Awakening slightly pips it maybe The Woman in Black is a more obvious choice yeah no no like choice I like, I like that's, that's a good that's a good uh, good left field option um, you're right Woman in Black Woman in Black was the one I was thinking you might say but I didn't, mm. want, to, I didn't want to put the words in your head um, <laughs> I do like Susan Hill's Books and I do like Jane Goldman's screenplays as well. So that, yeah. Yeah, I suppose, I suppose the, super, the superhero stuff that, that Jane Goldman's doing. Yeah. Oh yeah, you know, yeah. Plays into the kind of cosplay element of of where Goth can also sidle up to if it wants to. Mm. I mean, that's mm. the that's the thing I've I've been astounded by with all the, the you know the conventions that used to be few and far between. Now find me a city in the Western world that doesn't have a cosplay event now. Is yeah. the uh, you know. And you can see a lot. You can see a lot of certainly the, the dressing up element of what, what what would have been goth in the olden days, as it were, is just part and parcel of what people, especially if you want to dress up like some anime character or whatever. Yeah. You know, it's not a million miles, is it? 
But I, I guess that's the difference between cosplay and goth is the fact that when you're cosplaying, you're dressing up as a character and then you might go home and you, you take those clothes off and you become yourself. When you're goth, you're dressing up as yourself, uh, you know, a larger-than-life, exaggerated version of yourself, and those are your clothes. It's not a costume. It's not a thing that you, you know, put on and take off again. It's, it's you know, it's your life. It, it, it is your lifestyle. No, I remember coming, when I first came down to London, I came to London at the end, end of the 90s, hmm. and I had a big session out in Islington. Um, one Sunday afternoon, I think it was, and I was I was just before I'd moved down, so I was going back to Manchester, and I got on a tube, and I was in a carriage full of goths. They'd all come from Slimelight. Yeah, I'm sure they did, and I was yeah. like, I just was completely. It was just so. It was so unusual because it's like by that stage, the Banshee sadly got knocked down, and there wasn't really a sort of centre for where you you know a place where goths would congregate in Manchester as much. Um, I mean, there is around the streets for some reason, but that's a different story. Um, but yeah, no, it was really weird. Lots of frilly lace, lots of velvet jackets, and lots of people with, with corpse paint on their faces. And I was like, wow, this is still going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It was b before, um, uh, well, I said before, the tubes run all through the night, but they don't, still don't run all through the night. But yeah, people used to stay on at Slimelight till, what, half seven in the morning. They'd go on to the McDonald's, have their chips or whatever and then sort of gradually drag their corpses <laughs> towards Camden Market and head on home so that that's probably what you saw at the tail end of Slimelight well Slimelight Slimelight was at this place at the back of Angel wasn't it is that yes, right yes Electroworks is still there yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. god yeah which is it, ironically is, is, is almost like purpose built for a kind of various tranches of, uh, of goth isn't it as a, as a venue it's a big big warehouse yeah yeah yeah, yeah. well look um Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. To come on and talk much. about your book. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've enjoyed, um, I enjoyed recalling lots of my memories of Truth Be <laughs> Told. Um, and it was, it was fun. And, and like I say, a lot of the new stuff that I was able to see through your book was, was also very exciting. It's nice to see that it's sort of, I guess, I guess it's interesting to see it become more refined. Because I guess I, I, I grew up in a kind of more, I guess, DIY side of it and it's interesting to see it get to that kind of whole couture element and like think wow mm. it really has transcended mm. well look thank you very much thank you very much and uh, yeah good luck good, good luck with more sales for the book for, i guess for christmas presents it's uh, the yes. perfect uh, a perfect thing a perfectly beautiful uh, coffee table read that you can pick up and put down and dip in and pour over the gorgeous images yeah i like to say it's a coffin table book yeah. <laughs> indeed, indeed. I, sh I should have been there as a writer. I should have been there, but thank you for, uh, for, for, for picking me up. All right, well, thank you very much for your time, Natasha. Thank you. Right. Have a lovely day. And you, take care. If you don't already subscribe to BritFlix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at BritFlix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. 
Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.